great? Me too. Because I am almost finished with popping out all my chocolate little squares on my calendar. I bought it from my Amazon link on the website. But you know what it means when I finish popping out all my squares? That's right. I mean, Santa's here. I get to spend my day unwrapping paper to reveal the plastic presents for my son, my family. Mmm, the togetherness. <laughs> nah, I like the tradition. My son, he's five, almost six. So he's gotten really into the tradition this year. From decorating to gathering our own tree from nature and even making people presents. It's a lot of fun. I like reminiscing with my son and enjoying the things that I relished when I was a child. Especially cartoons. I recently sat down with him to watch some of the old cartoons. Like the ones that really stuck with me. You know, I know that you guys have a handful of those. For me, it was Courage of Cowardly Dog, Rocco's Modern Life, Ren and Stimpy, um, and a couple others. But Courage the Cowardly Dog always took me down frightening or strange um, ways of thinking, I guess. With the artistic style and uh, the experiences that Courage the Dog would confront, it was hard for me to look away. Sometimes I felt really uncomfortable, but I enjoyed it. It was interesting to watch my son go through a similar thought process. He couldn't turn away. And he had all of these questions like, you can't do that in real life. Or like, is that, what, what, what's wrong with him? And like, it was, it was cool. Because everything wasn't so sugar-coated. But at the same time, it, it was in other aspects. I've always wondered what went through the writers' minds when they were making Courage. So it was a pleasure to sit down with John Dilworth, or as I like to call him, Silly Dilly. He was the creator of Courage a Cowardly Dog, among many other films. He's got a new film coming up called The Goose in High Heels, which you can check out on his uh, YouTube page and you can subscribe to it too to keep up with the updates and when he's going to actually, when he's going to release the, the full film. He's got a trailer up on his YouTube channel. Um, I'll leave the uh, links in the show notes and you can also uh, find out, look at his like prior work on his website, stretchfilms.com, which I'll drop in the show notes as well for you guys. I got to watch the full film, and it was fascinating the way he explores how a catastrophe can disrupt the routineness of everyday life for within a society, and how catastrophe, much like 9/11 or uh, Hurricane Katrina, can or many others in its same name, 
can draw us together and remind us of community, of love. Kind of like the character Muriel on Courage the Cowardly Dog. You can check out the uh, trailer to the clip on the website, or you can even go to his YouTube channel, which, once again, you'll find out in, uh, find it in the show notes. It was a pleasure to see that he's retained his style and groomed it even further. Dilly is a kind man who has obviously spent a lot of time considering <laughs> how he spends his time. And what he enjoys is living an intentional life. And without any further ado, here is Silly Dilly. Enjoy. Good morning, John. This is uh, Will Nelson, uh, Becoming Human. Hello. Hello. How are you doing this morning? Oh, my bones work, Willie. <laughs> That's wonderful. I think mine are working, too. <laughs> What's your um, favorite thing for breakfast? My favorite thing. Well, you could you could you could blanch some kale and put that over two poached eggs with garlic and ginger and um you can put some even some carrots or beets on that and some lovely olive oil. So you can use uh, desert salt. You can put some black pepper and curcumin as a spice. I think that would be fantastic. Finish it off with olive oil, especially those. That sounds delicious. Poached eggs, are yeah, my favorite. <laughs> I didn't even tell you about the ginger or the cherry tomatoes. Ooh, cherry tomatoes, and all organic. Mm, it, that's from farmers who could tell you the name of the fruit and plants that you're going to eat. Mm-hmm. Makes it all the more uh, rich. I didn't realize with uh, cherry tomatoes that I tried the ones that I get at um, school as a kid and then, you know, just at Walmart. And I thought they they tasted horrible. I didn't understand why anybody liked them. Well, I tried heirloom cherry tomatoes for the first time this year. And they are amazing. I was so surprised by the difference. And And there's many, many examples of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this agricultural mindset. It's only it's only possible if we permit it. Mm-hmm. Imagine if if consumers just rejected this industrialized food stuff. I can't even call it food because without nutrition, what is it? Mm-hmm. It's like this vegan invention. All this. Uh, I hope you're not vegan. No, I'm not vegan. No. Yeah. I mean, all this imitate. What is it? I don't even know. You read the ingredients and you're not even sure what the ingredients are. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a novel in and of itself. Like the, the ingredients list are, are so long that you don't even understand how this is going to be something that's reproduced in nature in any way. It isn't. And you know, there's scientists coming up with the names for these things because they don't exist. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and it's like recon- somehow it doesn't get through. Mm-mm. Well, no. um, it's it seems that it, it like it appeals to us. I have to reiterate that to my son is that not everything that feels good is necessarily uh, good for you or will fulfill you. However, 
you know, the the momentum is convenience. Yeah. You know, you have to make more time for your Netflix binging. Mm-hmm. And I think that that serves us well in some senses if you consider, like, um, subverting labor for um, art or thinking or innovating products. But the way in which we do it or the consequences is um, very severe and needs to be reconsidered. With um, your films, do you write and edit them? Or do you write and animate them, rather? Well, uh, if it's a commercial, uh, the dynamics of of the process is very different than um, an art film. Mm-hmm. Now, making independent films, I'm I'm writing. You could, if you call it writing, but it's a form of expressionism, mm-hmm. and doesn't meet traditional storytelling patterns. But for, let's say, television production, you would have writers following scripts. Well, they would, we would create the scripts. And um, the best example of that would be on Courage and how I uh, reinvented the old process that Warner Brothers used during the golden age of cartoons, the 30s and 40s and 50s. They would sit around in a room with a bunch of funny people and with a premise, and they would beat out a story. I mean, encouraging all kinds of zaniness. But you need a, you need some kind of top person to, to guide the process, to guide the material. And so that's what I did. So we had, um, like half a dozen writers. And it would rotate, but every week we would sit down and have this this group uh, writing session. Uh, for me, the the most important element of the writing process was the original, the the initial premise. And what I would do is I uh, I would um, find topics that interested me, that had a a, a broad appeal or what I felt like would appeal to many people that would appeal well that were meaningful um you know you can go into the mythologies um for instance there are plenty of stories of our our folly human folly mm-hmm. you do you gravitate towards um those stories and how it relates to others like the um, stories of human folly? Well, yeah, especially um, with the with the dominant um, qualities of avarice and cruelty. Those are easy. Mm-hmm. You find them in the, the dominant psychopathy of, of history. Mm. I mean, Eustace, for instance, in Courage, Eustace was a perfect example of this kind of uh, psychopathy. I mean, he didn't, he didn't exhibit very much empathy for anybody no. except for himself. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because 
uh, in terms of commercials, maybe I'm, or not commercials, uh, kids TV shows rather. I those characters. I didn't get to. Um, there weren't many shows with those kind of characters that explored cruelty and lack of empathy. And that's something that was shocking to me in Courage and sometimes um, frightening, but not in like a, a, a bad way. In, in the way that it like, it drew me in. It drew my attention. Well, the best, the best remedy for uh, unpleasantness is, is um, some dose of comedy. Mm-hmm. And the evil always had humor in it. It was absurd. Yeah. It's not like the evil that I tried to portray in my film Goose and High Heels, for instance, mm-hmm. which was a, was a bit more experimental than I had intended. But the idea that evil or an evil event could happen at any moment in our lives just when we think that routine is boring. Hmm. Wow. That's, and we, it's almost, it's inescapable in the individual. Like, we often um, consider ourselves, or some people can consider themselves above that evil, and it can catch us blindly. That's really interesting. So, have you always been fascinated with that um, that dichotomy of, like, or no, not that dichotomy, the relationship between, like, uh, trivial mundane existence and, and the evil that lurks within the background? Well, we can't do anything about evil. It's just been with us. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there are Possibly there are very deep studies on the origins of evil. I've read some anthropological opinions that at some at some point in our history that uh, the living was a, a joy, and um, there's very there's not a lot of evidence of the kind of psychopathy that exists in our ruling classes today or in the history of our ruling classes. Mm-hmm. It was a point in our development on our history that we never came back from. So I don't think that people expect to encounter evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the day-to-day, when we're just going out trying to hail a cab or take our kids to school, or even have an espresso in the sun. Um, but it is fascinating to be able to identify evil. Mm-hmm. That's your, that's the first, the line of defense. Yes. Have you ever experienced a sensation that made you, well, whatever intuition is, cause an alarm? Like you meet somebody and you just don't know why either you don't like them or you feel uneasy around them or there's something you just don't know. Mm-hmm. Have you ever felt that way? I have felt that way. 
animals do this immediately. Their instincts are still, still functional. Mm-hmm. I doubt ours have maintained that kind of level. Mm-hmm. Of course, animals don't watch television, you know. They don't uh, exist in the abstract sense of uh, mythology. They uh, <clears throat> live in a very, uh, what is it, very realistic and grounded grounded way. And I think almost with anything, is if it's not, um, when you don't demand it of yourself, it atrophies or it becomes uh, weaker, less significant, if you will. Yeah, think about the, the the diminished range of motion human animals have evolved into. Mm-hmm. What is our? I mean, we're sti- we're sitting down now more, right, on a keyboard, or look at our thumbs. Mm-hmm. Will our thumbs now extend out mm-hmm. because it's the most dominant, useful object in our body? <laughs> yeah, it's the in the, the our environment will. Um, breed particular traits. I never considered that. Is now within our artificial environment, certain tr- traits and features are no longer valued as they were when we were in a natural environment. And I I've experienced this firsthand with taking people out and do um nature backpacking for um several days on end and the um, inability to start a fire or determine your sense of direction or even um, think is strategically with the materials that you have on hand is rather limited. Um, Even down to like uh, cutting a tree, not understanding how to use a hatchet, for example, or how fire is made, which is really weird to me. To be fair, mm-hmm. I could hear the voice of a contrarian stating that if one lives in an urban setting and all they really need to do is switch a light on, why do they need to know how to use a hatchet or start a fire? Mm-hmm. But for me, my opinion would be to know these things, mm-hmm. even if you live in an urban environment. And I would ask you, do you believe that these things add value to seemingly unrelevant um, urban life? Yes, I do. I think, I think knowledge is, uh, if you, well, I tend to be more of a philosopher and love knowledge. And um, I always find that even remote knowledge is useful. It really, it really depends on how we engage that knowledge. I mean, I like I like how Terence McKenna speaks about creating novelty in life, and we simply just don't know what we're capable of doing at any time with the knowledge we possess. Mm. And it is, I always feel it is better to know more 
regardless of its immediate practical use, than to not be aware that the wisdom exists at all. Mm. I can understand that because you wouldn't even, without knowing of that wisdom, you wouldn't know where it applies. And that I find it an interesting thing with discipline, or if you like hyper focus with writing, for instance, um, and that is all that you do. You create such a narrow range that you operate in within your experiences that over time it could actually take away from um, your art or your work. Yes, there is something about this over-specialization, but uh, there is then there's, well, how do you explain Chekhov or Proust? Um, I, I believe that um, if there's such a thing as, as a master, you would get out into the real world to absorb real experiences so as to keep the vitality of your muse high. And to be able to encounter inspiration. If also, also. And I will speak for the contrarian that you spoke of before, where if you didn't have the opportunity to specialize, as we do, in these urban environments, or hyper-focus on a given discipline, how would we ever innovate in the ways that we do today? Wouldn't it be regressive? Does that make sense, Dilly? Of course, we we need our specialists. But we are also uh, speaking about a, a fully integrated life, it's and 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 that would require um, variety. Mm -hmm. Variety informs your specialization. Um, for you, how do you, how do you handle that? With um, your your films, commercials, TV, with um, writing, is how do you handle your specialization? Do you try to um, have variety within your life, or are you trying to figure it out? I don't have any answers for this. Every day, um, I I. I try and live as consciously as possible, being aware of what I'm doing. And um, I can't say that I have agendas that are well thought out. <laughs> there is a, a, a form of organic living that I engage in, and and perhaps, perhaps it's it's not conducive to a society that's that's been conditioned to consume or produce at high levels. Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> but the the results or the aim of a society that is trying to produce at high levels, as opposed to, um, I guess, as you said, organic living. Um, the question would be which one is more satisfying or conducive to the civilization, the individual. Yeah, the thing is, is that we have to also consider the internal landscape. Mm -hmm. And um, I find that uh, if there is disharmony there, the external world will will suffer equally. Mm -hmm. I've, um, I'm gonna, I've had that experience with uh, hallucinogenics where there were things that, like oftentimes if I had things that I wasn't confronting um, prior to my use of the hallucinogenics, it would affect my day-to-day -day life whether or not that's like my attitude or with um, my relation with the people that I have relationships with, family, friends, so on and so forth, um, my art, it would adversely affect those things. And through hallucinogenic experiences, I would require to confront them without moving on or before moving on. And it was uh, glaring very in my face because as, as um, you may or may not know when you um, try to hide things like that or try to run from those things, then it makes your experience um, far more scary. <laughs> yeah, there's a an old shaman um, uh, bit of wisdom uh, where if you're under the influence of a tea and you see a cobra, and the cobra opens its mouth to consume you, not to run, but to leap into the mouth of the cobra. Mm -hmm. I've never heard that before, but that's very relevant for a lot of the experiences that I've had, even in my own life, confronting that resistance, that fear. I've been listening to a lot of, oh my God, for a long time, for decades and decades and decades, the use of um, uh, psychedelics like MDMA in, in therapy, mm -hmm. in treating trauma, and even levels of schizophrenia. Amazing and quick, effective, really? under very, you have to have a professional, of course, administering this therapy. Um, but the doors of perception, as our friend Huxley would, would, would write, they need to be open. You need to be without our inherited prejudices and taboos. I feel that uh, this is being restricted to society and almost, you know, and by implication, I mean, the, the desire to keep us unwell mm -hmm. and distracted by our internal landscape, which may not be, well, what did Plato write all those centuries ago? <laughs> be kind to everyone for each is fighting 
furious battle. So this malady of being human, and we don't, I mean, I have no idea. I mean, have you read anything about do animals suffer from melancholia? Oh, no. Low self-esteem? Do they suffer from forms of trauma? Yeah, we know that. You ever uh, um, adopt a pet, a cat or a dog Mm -hmm. that's been rescued? You know, they suffer trauma. Yeah. Yeah, so we know. They're the same. We feel the same. Only they, animals, don't have the ability to explore nature's gifts like like hallucinogenics or psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Or the ability to um, to meddle with nature. I don't mean in like terms of you know all this big infrastructure that we have, but through books, language, and our ability to access a wide array of psychedelics or different plant medicines, um, as opposed to certain animals by, you know, happenstance, whereas a deer comes across mushrooms or um, marijuana, for instance, and they eat it and they they do enjoy it, but we as humans can travel to the ends of the earth and explore nature's offerings in all of its capacities. And that's interesting. Yeah, I think our pursuit as humans mm-hmm. uh, should be this this myth of Eden, of paradise. And and I believe that that was internal, Mm. that it was a a genuine good in us. The stories that we have told historically, even currently, this uh, wrapped in mythology of our personal experience, it's like reading religious texts from uh, the perspective of the individual, like the internal landscape, as you said, has been fascinating for me because I've been curious about, you know, our own personal experiences. And like the hero's journey with uh, Sam Campbell, for instance, and even um, your films and TV show, like exposing the individual to uh, whether it's like uh, by happenstance or intentional, but exposing the individual to um, certain struggles and epiphanies, if you will, just like you're talking about with um, psychopathy and evil and balancing that with, you know, comedy and making people confront those aspects of themselves. Using story as a vehicle for that, because if it's blatantly told, um, it doesn't carry throughout the generations, or it doesn't. Uh, it's not talked about, if you will. You could look at the. Di- I would look at the difference between um, a lecture and a really good movie. The one quality that um, that has followed all all courage fans mm-hmm. over the 
Squad 18 years that it's been on the air is the identification of fear. That if this pink pooch could be so cowardly and yet do all that he did, the the fan could do also. Mm. What is that? Is that a, a variation of a myth of a religion? A God identifying with a invented being to help show the way, show a way. What is that? That's uh, that's not. I'm not familiar with it. I haven't studied it. We know our icons. They're supposed to be representational. We're supposed to create our own personal relationship with them in our way and cartoon characters do this? People have the natural tendency to to identify with those symbols and to structure their life based around those symbols. Now, courage is not a commercial property. Mm -hmm. It's not like a SpongeBob. Courage almost requires that you go deeper. Mm -hmm. And your relationship to the product, unfortunately, what it is, has, has roots. It makes you think there, unfortunately, there's morality involved. Not heavy handed. The dogma is not uh, heavy at all. In fact, you mentioned Campbell. Campbell talks about you need to deliver your didactism with a a sugar coating to go down easier. Mm -hmm. And comedy provides that. If you add comedy to... A, a heavy topic, for instance, it always makes, you know, the medicine go down, as they say. I've been having a lot of fun playing with that myself, getting into stand-up and um, trying to to understand our, our relationship with humor <laughs> on the individual level and just you know, his uh, styles on a whole. Well, imagine the the individual that has no sense of humor about them all, their own self, mm-hmm. that they're so precious, that they're being so vital, that they can't look at uh, shortcomings, personal shortcomings, mm-hmm. or sensitivities without laughter. Mm. I mean, for me, I'm constantly cracking myself up. <laughs> always, always. I, I just even now I have to think about. It. I just laugh at myself, and it's rare to encounter people that also share that quality. Mm-hmm. I think it'll help. I mean, we could be, we can recondition ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Buck, Buckminster Fuller talks about the the uneducating, re-educating <laughs> to to unlearn all that we have learned since childhood to go back to a a place where we're using our intuition more formidably to help guide us. I think you can see that within the landscape of our society. Um, and you're talking about the uh, internal landscape with how little um, people have an understanding. I guess uh, I'm speaking for uh, like the younger generations and my experiences uh, talking to them, just listening to people, whether it's social media, entertainment, and um, that how little of an understanding of our own internal landscape and what we expect to confront and how to cope with what we confront. Because it's often not something we're educated on. Well, my goodness, I went through a documentary uh, delivered by this uh, 35-year veteran of the New York school public system, public Ooh. school system, and he quit because he he couldn't he could no longer do what he want what he needed to do for his students, and that is educate them as individuals in this system. And so his first project was to go and study the curriculum of private elite boarding schools. And uh, it, it's amazing what he discovered. Uh, entire classes, uh, classes on politeness, for instance. And the idea behind that is uh, no one could really achieve their goals if they're not polite, even to their enemies. And then I think back, I think over and look at these international groups that get together and everyone seems so well behaved and everyone seems like they're generally interested in each other and well liked and friends mm -hmm. but it's far from the truth mm. plotting against each other you can't tell the enmity between these people but they just they had a class they were taught wow what about a class just on the main main functions of society, mm -hmm. for instance, how that's used? How about a class on how humans think and behave? And the motivation behind that is how do you get other people to do what you want them to do? Mm -hmm. What a class. A class just applicable regardless of what you're in. The antithesis is specialization. Well, these are these are advantages mm -hmm. that are not taught in our school system. What about logic? I didn't take a class in logic. I didn't even know there was one that existed when I went to university. Mm -hmm. I would have loved to have taken logic or rhetoric. Now that you are making me think of it, um, one of my first classes was critical thinking. And I critical thinking? Look at this. Yeah, I accidentally happened to be in that class. That was a psychology major originally. Ah, uh, yes. See, that's a good thing, too. 
I agree with that. The critical thinking, it it was fascinating because I realized the way that I structured my thoughts was um, that I just trusted not necessarily my, I was not speculative with people's, other people's ideas and notions. And I I would merely um, jump on to the thing that, that I thought sounded good, if you will. And that led me into trouble throughout my life on a um, personal level, even. And critical thinking, that critical thinking class, for some reason, more than anything, because a lot of the classes they were teaching at the time was just boring me to tears. But that critical thinking class stuck with me. And it, it, it has helped me in so many unrelated aspects of my life to... Uh, I didn't like my personal life, for instance, or even dealing with my son. And he, when he asks me questions, trying to um, uh, explain the thought process behind it, so that he can use it almost as a tool instead of a, um, a, a blueprint, if you will, like teaching him how to think. And that brought me on that rabbit hole of how to think. And I've met a lot of people in the um, labor industry throughout different, uh, what is it, careers that I was in, where the the way that their thoughts were structured was um, was just entrenched in a lot of misunderstanding, whether that had to deal with their own um, internal landscape, uh, like their aggression or insecurities uh, clouding their judgments and their reactions without them realizing it. And like, if you were to just have these, you know, a class or someone to expose you to a different way to think that that was even, you know, existed, it it could change so much. And I'm, that's why I'm, I'm fascinated by the stories that we tell and children growing up on, you know, with, uh, like cartoons, for instance, and different movies, oftentimes the symbolism wrapped within those stories is far more informing than even like a parent and child relationship, if you will. Does does that make any sense? Like some of the things that I've learned and was exposed to in, um, in media growing up address things that were never addressed by my parents. Well, we're talking about, again, um, societal taboos mm-hmm. and prejudices, and these things are inherited. They're passed down. Uh, I guess the, the responsibility now is on you, mm-hmm. because if you were able to break through and see, you know, the, the shortcomings of our parents, we'll, we'll call them wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, now the burden is on you. You're going to have to become the leader of the club. What about a class on a on the personal codes of, and standards? What about what about a class on your on morality and behavior? Yeah. What about a class on dealing with challenges of all kinds? For instance, if one is shy. You push them to public talking, or if you're of a bit timid, you in, you encourage confrontation 
And there is critical thinking because you would have to use your mind. Um, also, what if you had a class that taught you about resistance? What is resistance? Resistance is in exactly what you're saying, except uh, with a, a child who is shy. You teach them to, you know, go into public speaking, or you teach them to to, to speak publicly. Or someone who is timid, you have them confront people. Or someone who is um, overly confident, you you challenge their ability, like. A, teaching the individual to look at oneself and the things that they just struggle with purely, regardless, you know, in the, all the facets of, or all the ways that it could apply. Um, even with aggression, for instance, and how that, those are the things to, to be challenged, not to, um, run from. And w within a lot of things, or no, within any given discipline or um, ambition or even your own social life, it's relevant and it's critical. Like if you're not, if you're a writer or a comedian or a painter and no one's buying your stuff or everyone's buying your stuff, either one of them, right? And you think, you know, you don't look at yourself objectively to see how you could be better or the things that you do need to work on, how to connect with your audience more. Like that is critical in many aspects of our, um, of our personal lives. Sure. Sure. And it's part of this resourcefulness, this, um, this learned, uh, independent work and independent thinking. How, how do we do that really? Remember, I mean, still, so much is governed over our our private thoughts mm -hmm. and the and the inner voices or mm -hmm. how we're how we're wired how we have wired ourselves and also oh let's say i mean the examples you've mentioned are creative mm -hmm. i mean apparently we're, we're not businessmen here there's no business chat but yeah. um we it, creative tend to uh, feel things more deeply and that resonates in a sort of romanticism. Um, how, how do we um, work with these resources in a world that requires a sort of a, a, a quality of a tiger to get your out our art out there right mm -hmm. um, these are also very interesting classes to have taken in university let's say if you were an art student just as important as learning how to mix paint or learn photoshop huh yes Now, when I went to school, I didn't have um, the luxury of uh, gurus. <laughs> I don't even yeah. like the idea of a guru because the idea of a guru is you have to be exactly like them, but a wise people mm -hmm. that would uh, guide you in what you would need 
going forward. Mm. And uh, so I just had to make it up on my own, following my own gut. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't, I'm not pleased with the results. I would have loved to have learned how to gain access to anyone, mm -hmm. for instance. In the same token, your results, um, I would imagine, are very informative. How do you mean? Um, because not having a guru, for instance, you have working knowledge of uh, the the, sh the things that you confronted, like uh, the the basically like the idea of uh, being a guru, for instance, or being someone who is the example of what what is to be done and what is not to be done. If they were to um, go down your similar path. Yeah, that's I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna remove the title guru from yeah. this conversation because I feel again it's misleading. Yes. It doesn't even apply to our culture. It's, yeah. Um it has a lot of connotations with it too, I suppose, cause... You know, Muriel is a form of enlightened being. Really? By by her passive normal state of existence, a pure goodness, without judgment, filled with compassion, does not, it seems to be resilient to evil, doesn't see it, doesn't recognize it. And in a way, <laughs> it's disturbing, but, but it's, it also is a preservation. Preservationism, how? Preservation of one's soul. Mm. Preservation of goodness. If, if you don't recognize a thing, it almost nearly doesn't exist. It loses Unless, power. of course, it takes your life. Mm. Mm. You see, Muriel never complained. She never argued. She never confronted anyone in terms of authority, or challenged anyone. She's, a, she's as good as an, as an inspirational icon, I think, that could exist. Hmm? All love. Only love. That's something that was that you had in mind when you were creating the character, not so deeply because um when you're involved in the act of uh, love making, you're not planning every move mhm mm that would that would sort of be a little pathological, <laughs> yeah, no, but we're talking always about this organic quality. I mean, one big problem I have with um, with pure art or the pure act coming from a, a center, a spontaneous center inside us, 
is that it may not yield our will. And for example, I give you again my film, my latest film, Goose and High Heels. Two and a half years I spent on this film with all of the energy I could muster from my spirit and goodness, out of goodness, listening only to the art. And I projected an, a conclusion, mm. an outcome, an expectation, and I don't, and it, and it didn't happen. Mm. It didn't happen for me. And, um, I don't think it's going to happen for the world. They see the work. So, I mean, I have to, I also have to use some kind of pause in believing in only one thing. When we're creating art, uh, I, I really think it's just so complex mm -hmm. that there isn't a single route to discover what it could be, the thing that we produce. It's almost like when you engage in the reproduction of another human thing, another living thing. Mm -hmm. All our best genes, and even our worst, they get shook up and then rolled out like dice, and then you just see what you get. Mm -hmm. And there's, there, there's factors at play. There, there's mysteries at play. Can't be controlled. Yeah, you could do it, you know. I mean, so often, look at these billion-dollar box office pictures. You know that there's formula, there's alchemy going on. You know, it's been tested for 100 years. They know how to elicit, not only that, but audiences have been conditioned to react to certain in inputs. And businessmen know how to do that. It's in their best interest. How else can you continue bringing in these billion-dollar box office movies? That's what's rewarded, is being able to gain the attention of the largest audience possible. Yes, it's all great and well, right? Can you actually, I mean, it's being done. Yeah. But you, I mean, step back and look at these things, trying to analyze them. Mm -hmm. Do they seem all too familiar? Yeah. It's a routine pattern. Do you, with how formulaic it can be, at least with the big box office films, how many of them, I would question how many of them fail in uh, I don't know. pursuit of that. And we don't, and the conversation is wrapped around the successes. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you were talking to a real producer, Hollywood producer, that's, that understands all that noise, he wouldn't tell you. Because why should he share that? That's proprietary. Yeah. That's the, the most fascinating thing is what we cling to um, as a majority. You, like, and also the difference between 
like another big box office film that everyone would attend and you know would think is a good film and then you have someone else's film where maybe not everyone in our culture uh recognizes the film but there's this cult following there's like a dedication a dedication there you know like a um identification with the symbol with the symbolism well that's i identify with this i mean if you have if you're talking about whatever cult it's again another arbitrary invented word that means i don't even understand it now i don't either actually. context but you have a a much more you have a much narrow group who appreciate the work mm-hmm. and and there is a real relationship there i mean i believe i believe that they have to gain something out of it but that that gain is not short term that you don't outlive it mm-hmm. that that thing that you express as an artist that connect with people like that i trying to under not understand it but trying to elicit that from myself you know writing um just making things is so so mysterious because even things that work well that I would do on stage, for instance, I don't understand why they work well sometimes. Like I, I just write it down in the moment and, you know, hmm. I like that and I remove the things that I don't like. And it's like, I'm just guessing, like I'm fumbling in the dark. Hmm. Do you, WC Fields wrote a paper he wrote an article on what's funny, mm-hmm. and it's clear that he doesn't understand. Nobody does, even the most, the funniest people on the planet. Hmm. And there is even a book. There are there's, I mean, there are academics who will write on anything, right? Their theory mm-hmm. will try and explain why something is funny and why it's not funny. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know these books existed until an editor friend of mine who really doesn't have a, 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 a prevailing sense of humor, wanted to know why things are funny. Yeah. And and so he found a book that satisfied that. Oh, really? But in the end, no one could know what's funny. It's an intuitive thing. Mm-hmm. Again, and it's, it, it's so particular to, I guess, the context of the humor. Mm-hmm. A pie in the face. Well, for instance, the funniest thing. Remember in the old old movies, uh, there's a pretty girl walking by a lake, and a gentleman is riding his bike, and he's so distracted by her beauty, he rides into the lake. You start laughing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's a quality of a universal in it, the admiration of a beautiful thing. Mm. For instance. It's so beautiful, it distracts you from reality, and you go off the edge. Mm-hmm. That's forgivable. When you have been making, um, so Goose and High Heels is an independent film that you've been working on for about two and a half years, correct? Yes. And what um, what inspired you to 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 create that film? I love. 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 I wanted to portray the frustrations of creating 
a, a writer struggling with his material. And I wanted something that was trans-dimensional. And the conclusion was already known to me. And so it made the process for me exciting because I knew the ending. I always love working towards an ending. Really? But the journey to get there, I feel, was needed. Well, it was, um, had some errors. Mm -hmm. And that's because, you know, sometimes when you get into a river and it feels nice, it's the right temperature, and the current is just perfect, you can manage it. But you let yourself go, and the current just keeps going. Maybe it gains speed, its dynamics change, but you're still on the river. And I think maybe that's what I did. In exploring all these different stories, perhaps it was just maybe too challenging, too unconventional, required so much more energy on the viewer. And then in the end, it possibly wasn't so specific for general audiences. And and that and there my goals had failed. When I wanted something universal, I just I just seemed to have made another personal film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what, I don't understand the point of that. You don't understand the point of making just another personal film? Yeah, I didn't want to do that. Yet it turned out that way. And now as an artist, I have to live with this. Mm-hmm. Again, like a child that's born either with, you know, uh, <laughs> some kind of deformity. Yeah. Forgive me. I mean, you love the thing and that's it. That's the thing. And all its horrors and all its beauties. But I'm not a, I'm not, but I'm just talking about artwork, not, not another human life, not a life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I could, I could confess to disappointment with this work. Mm-hmm. And the amount of effort and resources that went into it to have so many failed expectations of it. And maybe there, maybe there is a, another matter of attention, irrational expectations. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> They color the results. Yeah, where was the practical thinking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Artists are so self-indulgent, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm always amazed. You see, I'm laughing now because I'm so ridiculous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the humor in it, I love it. <laughs> but the, what's important about Goose and High Heels for me is the introduction of the spontaneous evil act that destroys. And in this case, I used the Fukushima disaster. I had those three reactors exploding that interrupt lives forever. And I didn't have to telegraph that. I didn't. It just happens. It happens like you walk out the street, walk out of your home after a love really gorgeous breakfast and maybe even a little whoopee with your lover (laughs) and then you get hit by a car. And that happens all the time. 
So that's what I did in that in Goose and High Heels. I actually traced the actual explosions, and that's the animation. Wow. That's... And that's what changed the man's life. Yeah. It was that he saw, like a shaman, the end of things. And because he saw that process, he was able to recalibrate for him what was the most important thing mm-hmm. now in this love. Love. Because now we're all going to end up like, <laughs> well, we're not going to, right. We're the only creatures, I say, this is my own my closing remarks, mm-hmm. but the only creatures that I know of that will forfeit longevity for short-term pleasures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even the dinosaurs outlived us. <laughs> so wrapped up in the instant gratification. Well, Willie, there it is. We've uh, chatted for one hour. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate your time, John. This this means a lot to me, man. I've you you like all my expectations. You completely threw those out the window. Like you're. We're well, just talking about that. One shouldn't have them. Yeah, exactly. They color your experience, and you you're also making me very hopeful for art in the sense of just letting it happen instead of trying to control it and divert it. You know, as like the writing experience. I am excited. Um, thank you so much, John. I, I really appreciate it, man. You, it was uh, a pleasure. Thank you for the intellectual massage. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for the artistic massage. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with uh, putting it out or putting the episode out, if you want, you can uh, email me any links or pictures that are uh, relevant for promoting any of your projects or uh, goose and high heels or your former. Oh, that's great, Willie. Thank you. I will. Yeah, I will. Right now, I just have a trailer up, but um, I expect within six months I should have the online premiere. When my son watched your film, I was really happy to see that he was as engaged as I was. So, I, as an artist, I know that sometimes your children can come out disfigured or your art, but. I think it's still very um, relevant. No, you got to love it anyway. Exactly. <laughs> yep. The you know, that's idiot. the thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and think, okay, one more thing. Think about what happened with um, uh, Hera, Seuss's wife. Mm-hmm. They had a child. Hephaestus? He was so repulsive to his mother that she cast him off a cliff to drown in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And he only survived because a water sea god adopted him. And he learned the craft of metallurgy. And when he grew up, he made the finest, most beautiful jewelry. And guess who was his number one customer? His mom, who oh. didn't recognize him. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> we don't want that 
we want to love what we make, yeah? Yes. Children yes. or art or relationships, my God, we got to work on that. That's, that's, that's something. And I'll add, I guess, one last thing, which is um, when the individual loves, whether it's children or art, that it colors the presentation of that thing or the interaction with that person. If I were well, to... there's an energy there. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's exactly. definitely new energies being created, and their the radiance is is good. Yeah, and yeah. It, it it affects the 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 energy affects the experience and the outcome. But sure. Thank you very much, John. I hope you have a wonderful day, man. I will now. Thank you, Willie. Thank you, yeah. and thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. Have a good day. All right. Enjoy to you. Absolutely. Enjoy your espresso. Ciao. Ciao. Yeah. That was silly dilly. I love these conversations. Especially navigating story. It's been a favorite thing of mine since I was a child. I found it interesting when he was talking about like the concepts within courage aren't directly intentional or within his other stories. I found that with my own process with writing, whereas I would uh, pick an idea and I would essentially just write. And then I would edit keeping the things that I like. So if I were to tell a story about someone traveling into the wilderness and there were these themes that were pulled out of it, of like... Um, being uh, resilient, diligent, honest, and uh, like establishing clear communication with people. That's not necessarily intentional. It just came out of me. And I was still surprised to find that that was a similar experience for him with uh, Courage and his other work. I'm excited for you guys to check out A Goose in High Heels. I love his approach to like non-sugar-coated cartoons where they're not soft with round edges, but they're sharp, dealing with strange concepts, um, sometimes hard to swallow things, and like whether it's like locusts taking over a farm or an entire explosion devastating people's lives. <laughs> Even the one part in a goose in high heels where someone's life gets taken. And often, even with my own self, I encounter this. I restrain or hold back some aspects of reality, thinking that they are too difficult for my own son to manage. And... I realize the shortcomings in hindsight of such behavior. It's like um, trying to make everything on a jungle gym padded so that he can't hurt himself. Let him hurt himself. Let him see the, the harrowing difficulty within life, the evil. Don't enshroud him in an insulated bubble of goodness because it's a misrepresentation of our own lives. Dilly is like fuel for me. 
it helps remind me to be inspired with story and to look at symbolism for what it is, whether that's religious or modern media or a non-fiction book. I love the aspect of creating and meeting people that share that thing with me. It's fucking amazing. Given that I have was never raised around a community that told stories often or, you know, made their own stuff. Finding those people now as an adult, it's such a fun experience that I love to relish in. I hope to have future conversations with Dilly. Go check out the trailer for Goose and High Heels in the show notes or on YouTube, Stretch Films. Check out his website, stretchfilms.com, for all of his prior work and to stay up to date on anything that he's releasing in the near future. If you guys like this episode, please rate, review, and share everywhere. Spread it like the plague. Let's be like Ebola, except we're not going to drop off the face of the earth. And go to our Amazon Affiliates link. Buy all the plastic you can manage. I know you like it. Enjoy your Christmas, folks.